Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? I'm doing great. We are barreling along. We are uh, episode 221, season two, episode 21. And I'm going to warn you right now, we're not reading chapter 21. We're reading chapter 22 of yeah, the I'm bullet catch. said it because I uh, immediately, uh, I can't, this is beyond me now. I don't know why or how or anything. I just trust you implicitly like I always do. We are continuing our theme of how to build a better magician. And it is an honor and a privilege to have these two guys on. I am actually a little surprised that they said yes. I don't know why, because they're both very approachable. <laughs> but I posted something on Facebook and Tobias Beckwith kind of put an ad underneath it accidentally. And then he he uh, sent me a message saying, I really, I didn't mean to put my ad for the magic school as part of your post. I'm very sorry. And I said, well, there's one way to you know, be forgiven. Can you and Jeff do the podcast? So we have, uh, because of his typographical error, I think they would have done it anyway, as it turns out, we have Jeff McBride and Tobias Beckwith. These are guys who, like other teachers we've had, we, you know, we've talked to Suzanne and Tyler Erickson recently, but these guys run an actual magic school. Yeah, they really do. Jeff McBride founded the Magic and Mystery School in 1991. I attended it uh, and was blown away by it. And in the conversation, I couldn't quite articulate what it was or, or what it was intended to be or what I experienced. It's just different than any other magic event that I have gone to. It was more than a show. It was more than a lecture. It was not a convention, uh, but it, but there were so many elements to it. And I just couldn't articulate what I was trying to say. Towards the end of the interview, Jeff McBride went, bang, it's this. And I went, ah, oh, that's what I've been trying to say for 25 minutes. And he yeah. just nailed it. So well, it is his school, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. he might know how to describe it. Uh, yeah, no, but it's it's really if you are a magician listening to this podcast and you have not gone to the mystery school, it's an eye opener. It's a it's a really intense, cool, uh, mind blowing experience, and uh, you should think about trying to get there at some point if you can. And if you can't get there, you can get there virtually, uh, which I imagine is not going to be. Uh, the same experience, but you can still get some of that from these great teachers. Yeah, and and they are great teachers. Jeff McBride is phenomenal as a magician. And I, I think sometimes there's a difference. Like I took uh, Tai Chi and I took it with a really good friend of mine who's a martial artist. And he said to me, uh, there, there were two teachers. And he said, the one teacher is a better Tai Chi practitioner He's more fluid and he's got all of it down. I'm watching the weight distribution. He's the, the better of the two. But the other teacher, while he may not be as good a Tai Chi practitioner, he's a better teacher of it. He can articulate and explain it. Jeff has both those things. He is yeah. not only a brilliant magician, he has the ability to help you become a better magician. And uh, that's what I experienced anyway at the uh, mystery school. You know, we do dig into the principles behind the school in in the interview, but as we often do with uh, our guests, we started at the beginning to find out how they first got into magic. So let's just uh, set a level here and ask about where did each of you first begin to learn magic? Jeff, Jeff, well, I guess he didn't start before I 
did because I'm older than he is. But I, I my, my first book was a book called The First Book of Magic, which was the first book I ever bought. I was uh, six years old, first grade, and had learned to read enough. They said, you get to buy a book now. And they had these first book of, first book of the revolution, first book of farming, first book of, and way down there was the first book of magic. And at the time, I thought they were talking about my idea of real magic. I thought I was going to be able to wave my hand and make it rain. And, you know, and I got the book and I opened it up and I was so disappointed. It was just a bunch of tricks. And but it it, it took me 30 years after that to start to realize that tricks are about changing people's minds and giving you power. And at that point, I, I was already in the theater and uh, met Bob Fitch, who was uh, you probably know Bob. Is, was an actor on Broadway. I think he'd done 27 Broadway shows and a director and a dancer and choreographer. And uh, he eventually introduced me to Jeff and drew me back from the world of Broadway management and production into the world of magic and magicians, who I found vastly more interesting because actors are concerned about their role and their audition and their, and that's it. You ask them, yeah. But how do you feel? Well, I'm auditioning for so-and-so tomorrow. No, I don't. How are you? They can't answer it. Magicians are thinking about, well, I got to tell this kind of story and this is happening in the world so I can create magic around that. And people perceive and suddenly it was a much in, more interesting crowd to hang out with than, than the, the Broadway actors and dancers and things I had been hanging out with for 10 years. Jim, don't take offense. I know you're sometimes I referred to I, as an actor. I, I, uh, I don't really consider myself an actor. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> certainly not anymore uh, for the purposes of this podcast. Okay. Well, Jeff, where did you first start learning magic? It was the first magic I saw in my life was all done by women. Strangely enough, I had there was these two twin girls, Susan and Linda Benetton, that did card tricks. And they were younger than me, but they did... Uh, Four Jacks as robbers and the hotel trick with the four piles of court cards. And they taught me these card tricks. And then my my Aunt Joanna Rawson, who is the daughter of Clayton Rawson, the magician and mystery writer who oh. wrote a number of books. She performed, I think, the first magic trick I ever saw uh, at my bedside. It was just, you know, her taking her finger off. She she promised if I stopped crying that she would teach me a, a magic trick. And her, she grew up in a magical family. Uh, Clayton Rawson was, wrote his uh, magic books under the name of the Great Merlini. And that was actually my first magic book. And I didn't even know that I was like semi-related to this great mystery magician novelist. That's kind of a weird coincidence. <laughs> I love when that happens. Uh, the coincidences are a sign that perhaps there's more that meets the eye, maybe, huh? Well, I think that we're, we're what we all have in common here is that we're all interested in magic and all in, in and all interested in mystery, and that's you know that that's the thing that 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 connects all of us from our diverse backgrounds. And I met Tobias through my pursuit of wanting to learn more theatrical magic, and I met Tobias uh, because he was a friend of. Bob Fitch, the great veteran Broadway actor, uh, great magician, and they were working on a show together. And I wanted to learn more about theater. And so we all got together and started working on shows. And, and then years later, we got involved in the magic and mystery school because we wanted to spend time with 
really wonderful enlightened magicians like Eugene Berger and, and Max Maven and Charles Reynolds and people that were involved in magic on a much deeper level than just performing tricks. And that's where Tobias and I really connected. And Tobias, you were working Broadway shows. That's where you learned a lot of your, you know, production skills and theatrical skills. Tobias also taught, um, taught theater at the University of Pittsburgh. What was that like, Tobias? Oh, that was fun. I, I had to give it up because I woke up one morning and realized that I was doing the thing I hated from professors, that, that I was teaching something I hadn't done professionally. Ah. And, um, and so I packed up and moved to New York City and learned more working in a box office and as a general manager at the Fantastics. Um, which was then in its 14th or 15th year, I think, running off Broadway, than I had in six years of college and three years of teaching. And that most of what I had learned didn't have much bearing on the real world and standards and things like that. So um, so I, I, I didn't go back to school. I, I had gone there because I was going to go to NYU and finish my PhD. And after two or three months actually working in the theater, I had no desire to go back and finish the PhD. <laughs> and you were working on really high level Broadway shows. I mean, the Fantastics was the longest running show. Oh, Calcutta was one of the longest running shows on Broadway. Yeah. And then you learned a lot about your craft from working uh, Sweeney Todd. Mm. Absolutely. I was a production assistant when they were still raising money before it started rehearsals even. And then eventually where it did that all the way through the Broadway run. And they sent me out as a company manager for the first national tour. Wow. With Bill Lensbury and George Hearn. And so I learned a whole lot about the business and the art of being professional mm -hmm. that I never understood. Cause I, I came in as an actor and director and thought, Oh, I'm an artist. I don't need to know all that garbage about the finances. And it was only after actually being thrown into the fire and, learning about the profession and the, you know, how the, how the fact that every artistic effect decision affects the bottom line and every business decision affects what appears on the stage. And so it's, it's all one big picture. And until you start seeing your business or your career that way, you're really an amateur. It, it's great. You love it. You would love doing the tricks, but you don't understand the bigger picture of what it's all about, how the art fits into the society, how the, you know, how your your biggest job is satisfying clients, not doing the best show you can for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yes, you want to do that. You get to do that. But the big job is creating the career, creating the thing that's useful in the world somehow. When, when and, one of the great stories that Tobias has of triumph over adversity is the you know the balance of the show and the business that's where Tobias really shines because he's got this this business savvy that he's learned from boots on the ground running successful Broadway shows he's got the business but he's also got the theatrical background so he kind of knows the balance that it's 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 both show and business and not only does he teach courses in this but this you know and in these courses Tobias tells this story about the early days of Sweeney Todd, this triumph over adversity is that, could you tell that story about how it was like running into like severe problems? They were thinking oh. about that, like from the trajectory from just a couple of weeks before this thing opened, Tobias? Absolutely. It was, um, 
but it was my my dream. I was working with my heroes, Hal Prince, Stephen Sondheim, Richard Barr, and Charles Woodward, who Richard was president of the League of Producers at the time. And because I was driving Angela Lansbury back and forth to the theater, as part of my work as the PA, I got to sit in and watch the rehearsals. And it was kind of a mess. Hal was Hal had just opened Evita in London. And he spent most of the time on the phone talking to the box office in London saying, why aren't we spending more tickets? Why aren't we doing this? Instead of watching the actors rehearse on the stage, he had an assistant running the rehearsal, doing the blocking, doing the... And halfway through, he said, oh, and we need this bridge that'll go up and down. It'll only be another $50,000. Well, this was in an era when Sweeney Todd was one of the biggest productions so far. It was a million-dollar production, and they didn't have another 50000 So they had to go raise that on the way. But anyway, we got to previews. And I had seen it enough. I knew what was going on. And the actors kind of... but. They got in there in front of the first audience. They had these razors where he cuts people's throats with when he's, and they were mechanical. They had uh, CO2 cartridges in them. So the first night they get to the place where he cuts the first throat and the blood spurts all the way to the back row of the theater and everybody in the audience gets splattered. And some (laughs) people are jumping out of their seats and running out going, I don't know what's going on, but it's the worst thing I've ever seen. And it just, the show didn't make sense yet. But after that, they went into 10 hour a day rehearsals in two hours. And within one week, it became the show that won, what, 14 Tony Awards or something. And a brilliant, brilliant piece of theater. But Hal knew enough after doing 30 hit Broadway shows. He said, I'm not going to know what the show's about until it gets in front of an audience. Wow. Which is, you know, a great lesson for magicians. We, We don't know what the trick's about until the audience tells us either. It's true. It's like, you know, getting out in front of an audience is going to tell you more than, you know, they'd say one live performance is worth 10 rehearsals in the studio. And, you know, one of the things that we do at the Magic and Mystery School is we, you know, encourage precision. And of course, we want students to rehearse and have good scripts and good technique. But we also, you know, many magicians get into analysis paralysis. They want everything to be perfect. And as we learned from our master teacher, Eugene Berger, one of his favorite quotes was by uh, Leonard Cohn from the, from the song Anthem. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. And that's what lets the light in. Hmm. So sometimes we know we have to dare to fail forward fast. We have to dare to go out there and do something. And we learn from it. And, you know, we encourage the students to video and to send us video so we can go over the video and help them refine and make things better. But, to, you know, to get out their boots on the ground and, and, and do it and perform. You know, Lance Burton says, you know, it takes a thousand shows to become a competent magician, a thousand shows. And these days, I think people are so swept up in social media magic and kind of disposable bubblegum magic that they forget to go deep on things. And... You know, back when I was working on my show, we did, you know, four or five tricks thousands of times in front of audiences. Now, in the social media era on on, on Facebook and TikTok and, and Instagram, a magician will do a trick once, video it, and that's it. 
Mm-hmm. And then it's on to the next thing. And that's really contrary to, you know, the, the way I was taught martial arts was the philosophy of, of, of um, Bruce Lee that says, I fear not the man that knows a thousand kicks. I fear the man that knows that has practiced one kick a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Before you guys put together the Magic and Mystery School, were you taking on uh, students or protégés and teaching them magic? I've always taught magic. Even when I was in uh, high school, I had students that wanted to study with me. So I've been teaching magic since the 70s, you know, the mid 70s. And it's only, you know, when you talk with other teachers, like um, one of our teachers at our school is a a Dr. Ricardo Rosencrantz, who teaches magic and medicine program up at uh, Northwestern University in Chicago. And he's a member of our senior faculty. And when, you know, the doctors have a, a saying, see one, do one, teach one, mm-hmm. you know, when they're learning procedures, you have to watch it first and then you do it. And then you teach it. You learn. Uh, I learned so much by teaching. I learned from my students. So in the act, I mean, I teach magic all day long. I am on zoom from nine o'clock in the morning till I have another appointment in 20 minutes. I have another class today. I mean, and I'm on like, six, eight, six hours, at least a day doing, you know, half an hour or hour lessons with magicians all over the world, watching their videos, giving them feedback, helping them get better, working on some of their strategies, working on some of their marketing and websites. So the more you do it, the better you get at it. But I learn so much every day from my students. Absolutely. Look, can we talk a little bit about um, the mystery school now? Because I, in my experience, uh, it is a very, uh, you, you can't, something can't be very unique, but, it, but a unique offering in the world of the magic community. It's not a convention. It's not a lecture. It's not, there's so many components. What was the, what was the genesis of it? Or what was your thinking behind putting together a mystery school? Well, it started, you know, over 30 years ago, I wanted to spend time with Eugene Berger and really illuminated masters. And it was a way of me spending a week with these people, having them be our special guest and them teaching not only their performance techniques, but the psychology and the philosophy and some of the underlying theory behind what they do. And we used to do it once a year and that wasn't enough. So Tobias and I and Eugene Berger got together and after nine years of doing it once a year, we said, okay, let's create kind of an oasis of magic where magicians, no matter what their level, whether they're beginners in magic or they're intermediates or whether they're advanced pros, we can come out. And since we have a number of teachers, we can break the students into different groups of beginners, intermediate and advanced and rotate the groups. And we only work with small groups of up to 15. So Tobias will take five students, I'll take five students. One of the other master teachers will take five students and we rotate the groups, giving them exactly what they need, both on the show and business level. And what a master class is, everybody calls everything a master class, but master class is a, a, a term that comes from music conservatories where a student will perform a piece and then the master teacher will help them make it better. So the essence of the teaching at a master class is you bring something you're working on, whether it is a single routine or a whole act, and we help you get 
better scripting, better blocking, better techniques, better music, better costumes, better business strategies to help level you up so you, you can add an extra zero to the end of your check for the show or just become a better magician. And certainly I saw all of that at the uh, the mystery school that I attended. I, I enjoyed every second of it, but there was, in, in my memory of it, uh, there was more to it than that. There was more than just um, sort of a hands-on, let me help you get this to a place where, uh, and the other students watching, there were some mind-bending things there. There was some real stretching of us, not as performers necessarily, but as human beings. And there were, um, there were field trips that we took to kind of open us up to other ways of thinking and doing things. It was just a really surprisingly effective way to shake us out of what we're normally doing or thinking about. Yeah. Well, magic at its very best, you know, blows your mind. So yeah. magicians who think they have it all under control need to have a mind blowing experience. One of my favorite sayings is that you can't give somebody a gift that you don't have. So mm -hmm. if a magician doesn't have a mind blowing magical experience, that's transformational, how can they give that to someone else? Yeah. And that's what we provide. And was that always part of your thinking? This Because now I remember the stories from friends of mine who attended mystery school early, that there really was a lot of sort of um, getting people to really open up and think differently and experience things mm -hmm. that would blow their mind. And, you know, and our program has changed over the years and, and now is a program and we have different programs. We have one day classes. We have three day classes. We have seven day classes. Remember, we used to do it once a year. Right. And now we do it, you know, continually on a regular basis. And many of our classes are on Zoom. Today, we have a, a class starting on Zoom, a three day, a three day conference on inclusion and diversity. And we have mentalism classes. We have street magic classes, illusion Tobias and I teach a thing called the pro class, which is about show and business. And this is for people that are, you know, are wanting to level up their professional business skills and also make their show better. And this is an online class that Tobias hosts. And I come in and I help people, you know, with the show part and he helps people with the theater and the business part of it. And it's a small group. You know, we like to work in small groups. Back in the early days, we, when we only did it once a year, we had much larger groups. And now we've, over the years, dialed it in where we like to do smaller groups, like five, 15 people. So we can really give people extraordinary amounts of individual attention and personal one-on-one -on -one time. Let's talk a little bit about Eugene Berger, because um, you've mentioned him and you mentioned that one of the impetuses for Mystery School was for you to be able to spend some time with mm -hmm. Eugene and and learn from from him, as so many of us did. Uh, tell me his role and how you saw that and and how it all kind of fit together. Well, you know, he's the Yoda, you know, he's the Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's the Gandalf. You know, he's the Dumbledore. He is the ritual elder of the school. He is the wise man. And he empowered all of us to, you know, to think deeper about our magic. You know, mm -hmm. and now that, you know, that uh, Eugene's gone, you know, Tobias kind of holds that role as our as our elder in, in the mystery school community because he's, Tobias was right there at the very beginning. 
and now is kind of taken that position on as as the Yoda, as the Obi Wan, as, as has Larry. Larry is our philosophy. He's picked up the philosophy, and I I picked up the theatrical end of that. Larry. Larry, Larry Haas, who is oh, okay, in, yeah, okay, right. school, yeah, and runs you know his theory and art of magic press, and is a wonderful performer as well and director. But he was a philosophy professor beforehand, so he's got that end of things really nailed down. But I, I think a big part of the school and and what what you're talking about is just that if you come to come to the magic and mystery school, you understand that you're in a community of people who think magic's important. Mm. It's not trivial it's not just a bunch of tricks it's an important way of dealing with life as is theater as our films are it's an important art form and probably more important than most people give it credit for so it's uh, and i think that's one of the reasons we have people who come back again and again we do the this mentalism class every year and it's usually sold out for next year before they go home from this year because it's that deeper community of you know 15 or 18 people who go wow 15 or 18 people in the world who are as excited and passionate about this art form as i am mm-hmm. and uh so I, I i feel like that's a big part of what we offer that that's a little different than people who are you know here's another way to do a double lift yeah and they found their and, tribe yeah no. well, not only that but we we get together with our students every monday night for an hour online Anyone that's a member of our online school, we get together for the past 11 years. We, we were streaming nearly 12 years ago, every Monday night yeah. for an hour. You know, we have n- nearly 600 uh, hours of, uh, and more of, of different uh, episodes on every conceivable subject and interviewed any, everyone in magic. Uh, and, and it's that consistency of feeding the tribe, of feeding the community and, and creating a real oasis for them to come uh, each and every week to reconnect. That it's not just an experience that you go do, a show that you go see or uh, a, a class that you take or a lecture that you see, that there's continuity for a lifetime. I mean, people that have been coming to our school and coming to our classes have been coming for 30 years. Yeah. Wow. So in, in that 30 years, how has magic changed and how, how do you see how have magicians changed in that time? Well, I, I, I mentioned it briefly before. I mean, I think we're living in the age of where, where magic is getting cannibalized and eaten up and spit out by these social media machines faster than it can be perfected. And I think people are much more fixated on creating content than art. Mm. And, and I would say from my experience at Mystery School that, that you have turned that on its head, that you are interested in, in creating art or getting a magician or a, somebody at your school at least to think about it in those terms. Yeah, we, we want the people to go, to go deeper. I mean, there's nothing wrong with social media. It's just when, it run, when, it, when it's leading the, the economics of the magic community that you have to read ads to buy social media magic so you have a trick that week so you can get clicks and likes of people that not even buying your product just so you could have the more illusionary numbers at the end of your your TikTok or something that you have followers that you know but it's not making a connection with anybody mm-hmm. yeah you know it's clicks and likes aren't aren't aren't, aren't soul-filling meaningful experiences we, we talked about magic, this a lot 
when, when we built Jeff's Zoom shows, because a lot of people were just doing their show like they're in front of a camera. I said, well, Zoom is kind of an opportunity to use a camera and reach a bigger audience, but it's interactive. They can feed back. And so Jeff built a show that was about telling stories, about involving the audience. Every, every piece had some kind of feedback from the audience. Do this, pick a card, do this, and exploring the medium because it's an interactive medium. Yeah. Uh, you know, for, for me, magic, yes, I love a movie that has magic in it. Yes, I love to see a magician, but it's not that experience that you get when you're live. Not that experience that, oh, it could go wrong. This is really happening. No, it could be CGI. It could be this or that. And so it, I, I think that's a big part of what makes it important for us and that you don't get on YouTube or, you know, TikTok or whatever. Right. So what are you both excited about in magic these days? I'm excited about the, the number of people who are excited about moving magic outside of entertainment alone. People like like Joshua Jay's book on um, thinking like a magician, or David Kwong's book Spellbound. How are what we know, what we have learned, applicable to? Well, for me, the world of startups. I'm interested in helping startups use magic to change people's minds, in specifically in in the climate change industries, the energy and mm -hmm. things like that, because they need to change the public's minds in order to get us to behave differently differently if the planet is going to survive. Well, magic's good for changing people's minds. So it's sort of the premise of tricks are, oh, you think the world's this way? Well, think again. And it's more effective than just saying you need to change. So I'm excited about those, those outside applications. That, that, that's just for me personally. Mm -hmm. um, Jeff, Jeff is much more immersed in the heart of performing in the art of magic than I am. So he'll have a different answer, I'm sure. I like, uh, you know, we, we hear the term immersive so much, but that's actually what the very first mystery schools over 30 years ago were. They were immersive experiences where you were in the center of the experience instead of watching the experience out there. It wasn't a magic show or a lecture happening on a stage over there. I spent a lot of time at festivals and I met my wife, Abigail, at a festival and I go to Burning Man Festival and other conferences and festivals. And I'm working uh, in January. We we go live with our one of our courses called Immersive Magic Theater, which is going to be interviewing and having teachers uh, and innovators and trendsetters and influencers that are creating virtual reality uh, experiences, immersive theater, participatory theater, environmental theater. Uh, there's so much uh, uh, of this going on in Vegas right now that the shows, the, the performance experience has to be immersive and totally sensorial, sensual to stimulate all the senses. So magic is not just something you watch, it's something that you're inside of. <laughs> Well, now I'm excited about that. <laughs> that just sounds great. Well, we've always, we've always, mystery school has always pushed the edge. You know, you think mystery school and you think something ancient and archaic and, or maybe Victorian or something, but you know, we've always been ahead of the curve technologically. Fantastic. Jim, do you have any final questions? Yeah. Just because this book that uh, we are uh, letting the listeners uh, hear is called the bullet catch and it's about 
that trick uh, is sort of at the center of this story that John has written. Do either of you have any thoughts on uh, the trick, the bullet catch or any hands-on experience with it? Well, I think it's a metaphor for alchemy because the person that could catch the lead got the gold. So it's transforming a little tiny piece of lead into box office gold. Box office gold. I think we're now up to the 21st episode, uh, uh, the bullet catch, and that's the best definition yeah. I've heard so far. It, uh, it, it, he nails so many things so perfectly and succinctly. Like I, I was trying to say all along what he said at the end, which is you are not watching something here at Mystery School you are in the center of that experience. And that's what I was trying to say. You are not sitting passively. You are, you are thrust into the middle of that experience. And it's mind blowing sometimes the things he has you do and the things he shows you. Uh, it's, it was terrific. There was so much gold in what we heard from Tobias and Jeff. My favorite thing that I've actually used since then in conversation is the idea of, uh, I fear not the man who knows a thousand kicks. I fear the man who has practiced one kick a thousand times. And that just makes so much sense. That crazy Bruce Lee, he knew what he was talking about. Yeah, I guess yeah. he did. I guess he did. And the other thing they said that I just thought was fascinating was this whole social media thing, the idea of creating content and not creating art and that the, the notion of uh, clicks and likes are not truly meaningful experiences. And people seem to think they are and they aren't. Speak for yourself. I count on those clicks and likes. Uh, but yes, I, I agree with that completely. And you know what? 40 years ago, Eugene was saying the same thing. Eugene was saying the exact same thing. I remember a, 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 a chapter in one of his pamphlets that said, if you're an artist and uh, you want me to look at your work and you show me all of these half done paintings, Mm -hmm. you're not an artist until you finish something. Right. And that's, that's Jeff's point, which is just delve deeper and you'll be surprised at the amount of uh, gold you can mine if you just keep digging. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing that I took away that I, surprised me because I thought I knew, I did know, um, but I've just been uh, confused by things online. But the idea of the masterclass, which now is, you know, all over the internet, where you can take a masterclass with Aaron Sorkin if you want. And Jeff's definition of it, which is that's not a masterclass, that's a lecture. A masterclass is where you come in and you present something to a teacher and they work with you on it. That's a masterclass. And that reminded me of doing that with John Carney, mm. where I presented the one trick that I do and the issues I had with it. Um, and there were a bunch of other magicians around and John spent 20 minutes, whatever, going over it with me and helping me make it better. And that's, um, I know you took uh, a masterclass with John years ago, right? I did, yeah. Um, he was here for one of the Wizard Weekends in Minneapolis. He was one of the uh, performers and lecturers, and he offered a masterclass. And um, I really had nothing to show him because, as you know, I'm not really a magician. I sometimes play one, but I, I'm not really a magician. So I didn't really have anything to show him, but I took the master class just to be sort of in the room with the master. And it was eye-opening in terms of his ability to look at something and say, okay, but in such a kind, nice way, lead you to where your magic becomes stronger, more impactful, uh, more mysterious and more enjoyable for you as a performer. 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was terrific. Terrific. John Carney, if he's offering master classes and you're a magician and you can get in with Carney, whoo, sign up. Well, and that's what the that's what they're offering at the Magic School. Um, we're going to be talking to David Williamson uh, in a couple episodes. He does that online now, one-on-one masterclass with David Williamson. I mean, it's such a great time to be able to take advantage of that sort of thing. And I will say that if uh, if you're interested in uh, Jeff's school, there are some links in the show notes of how to get there, as well as some videos from the school. So that you'll get you all caught up on that. Highly recommended. Great experience profound in terms of its sort of uh, shattering of my own belief system and uh, making me think outside my own box that I brought with me. He was great. It was great. And speaking of profound, why don't we jump right now into chapter 22 of the bullet catch? That's a segue that uh, I think I would be pulled over by the police and given a some sort of citation for having. <laughs> you know where I was going? 22, 22. <laughs> Yeah, she likes I'm shocked, Johnny too. Shocked to find out there's gambling going on in this. <laughs> anyway, um, just to recap what happened uh, last episode, we listened to two chapters, chapter twenty and chapter twenty-one. They did the bullet catch shoot on the film set. Uh, we found out that uh, who the uh, intended killer was, and that person was arrested. They've had a bit of a, a celebration with the movie being wrapped, and and Eli came home to find that uh, um, Uncle Harry is very upset because his friend Max was dead. And that brings us right now into chapter 22. <laughs> An Eli Marks Mystery Chapter 22 The wake for Max took place two days later at Adrian's. The bar had been such a long-time hangout for the members of the Minneapolis Mystics, it seemed the appropriate place to gather and say goodbye. I didn't see much of Harry during those two days. He spent every waking hour organizing the event. I think having the various tasks to focus on helped him to deal with the sudden loss of his friend. Due to the advanced age of most of the mystics, it was decided an afternoon memorial would allow for the largest turnout. The owners of the bar were happy to pitch in, and a sign on the door announced the entire establishment was closed for a private event. Not having an official function, I planted myself near the front door, acting as the informal greeter. This allowed me to either steer people toward Harry, or, if he looked too busy with other guests, to steer them toward the bar and the food. I told you there'd be food. The voice was as familiar as her sentiment. I turned to see a tiny, white-haired woman pushing her way through a bottleneck that had formed by the front door. She was dressed for winter, even though it was close to 90 degrees outside. And I also told you be freezing in here, Franny continued, shouting over her shoulder. She spotted me, and we both broke into bittersweet smiles. Eli, boy chick. I bent down to hug her, and she buried her face in my neck. How is Harry doing? She whispered. He's holding up, I said. He's doing good. Good, she said, stepping back and giving me the once-over from head to toe. I had another ping about you the other day. I don't often get twinges off the line, but this one was solid and it was about you. Another ping about me? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to label myself a believer. Franny's predictions hit more often than they miss. 
even if they do land left of center from time to time. Her last prediction that the man who got shot was the man who got shot, but he wasn't, seemed a fair, if garbled, description of what had happened to Jake on the film set. So I always kept my mind as open as I can for Franny's pings. Yes, I was washing the dishes last week, and I suddenly got an image of you and the words, stick to the lobby level. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, I said, yes, it does. Wow, that's nice, because I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Now I know I smelled food, she continued, perching on her toes, in a failed attempt to see over the crowd. Even in a room full of tiny old people, Franny's diminutive stature still put her at a disadvantage. I pointed toward a table which had been set up by the far end of the bar. There's food back behind the bar, I said. Help yourself. There's going to be a short program starting in about five minutes. Quick, let's get food and find a seat before both are scarce, she barked over her shoulder. Her companion had been trapped in a bottleneck of walkers and canes by the door, and at that moment was finally able to maneuver her way into the room. It was Megan. We spotted each other at the same instant, and so were spared that fleeting moment of hesitation of what to do before the other person sees you. We stood, frozen in place for a second, and then simultaneously took a step toward each other. Eli, she said softly. Megan, we each took one more step, eliminating the small distance between us. We then negotiated a hug, with each of us turning first one way, then the other, until we managed to execute what had once been a simple and frequent action. We held each other for a moment longer than I expected, and so I used the extra time to get a quick waft of her hair. We then stepped back, standing closer than strangers, but not quite as close as lovers. Your hair smells the same, I finally said, when no other thought was able to make the short jaunt from my brain to my lips. It does, she said, suddenly self-conscious. Well, I suppose it would, still using Johnson & Johnson baby shampoo. If it ain't broke, I said, as they say. Absolutely. Another awkward pause. It was nice of you to come, I finally said. I like Max, she said, and I wanted to be here for Harry. How is he? He seems to be doing okay. He spent the last few days organizing all this, I said, awkwardly gesturing to the bar around us, which I think has been good for him. And how are you doing? You knew Max a long time. Leave it to Megan to ask the question no one else had raised, even me. Everyone had been so concerned about how Harry was taking the death of his friend, no one had thought to ask how I was feeling about it. To be honest, it hasn't settled in yet, I said. I've known Max forever. He taught me my first double lift, then spent the next 25 years criticizing me for the way I did it. Max was someone who was always, I don't know, always there. So it will take a while for me to get used to a world where he's not. Megan was nodding along as I spoke, and I noticed tears had begun to form in her eyes. She closed the gap between us and gave me another hug, this one much more intense than the first. She then stepped back, wiped a tear away, and looked around the room. I'd better find Franny, she said hoarsely. Find the food, you'll find Franny. 
She smiled up at me. I'll see you later, she said, and then began working her way toward the far end of the bar. Not a bad turnout. I was adding more chairs to the back row due to the surprisingly steady flow of people who were streaming into the bar. I looked over to my left and was surprised to see Deirdre. She pulled a chair off the stack in the corner and handed it to me to add to the new back row I was attempting to create. Why did Harry decide to have the memorial here in the bar and not in the theater next door? I placed the chair she had given me and made room for the next one she was handing me. Because there are too many seats next door at the theater. Excuse me? I set the chair and turned to her. It's a show business thing. Most performers would rather play to a small, full house than a large house with empty seats. Harry always says magic is more magical in a packed house. I'm surprised to see you here, I continued, straightening the road Deirdre had helped me create. I quickly calculated if it would be possible to add another row behind this one. Max performed at our wedding, she said, handing me another chair and readjusting my work to accommodate more people. He was a crank, but a sweet crank. That he was, I said. I leaned on the chair for a moment. You know, I had forgotten that he was one of the performers at our wedding. How many magicians performed altogether? Eight? Ten. And a mime. I smiled at the memory. Deirdre, you were very patient to have had that many magicians perform at your wedding. She shrugged. That's the price you pay when you marry a magician. And speaking of marrying a magician, I saw your old girlfriend across the room. Is your new girlfriend coming as well? What new girlfriend? The widow LaSalle. She's not my girlfriend, I said, my voice nearly cracking. I'd keep it that way if I were you until all the evidence is assembled. I took another chair from her but didn't set it down. Is Trish actually a suspect? I mean, really? Maybe, maybe not. If you're wondering, do we have enough evidence to book her, the answer is no. Because if we did, we would have by now. But in your mind, she's still a suspect? Deirdre took the chair out of my hands and set it in place at the end of the new row. Her biggest problem right now is what I call the last man standing syndrome. When just about everyone in her small circle is dead and there's not a scratch on her, that doesn't look good for her. What about Mr. Lyme? Did you track him down? She shook her head. The house where you met him is currently unoccupied and has been for months. The title search shows ownership belongs to about 20 different dummy corporations set up like Russian nesting dolls with nothing but air in the final doll. But he exists, I said, a little more emphatically than I had intended. Eli, I don't doubt he existed when you met him, but he's vapor now. For all we know, he's as dead as Dylan LaSalle and Howard and Sylvia Washburn. She made an unnecessary adjustment to the final chair. Anyway, I'm going to go sit down. I recognized her tone from the latter days of our marriage, with her body language basically screaming, I'm done talking about this. She walked to the other side of the room, even though we had jointly created two new empty rows in front of us. I waved some latecomers in, 
as Abe Ackerman took the small stage and began the process of us all saying goodbye to Max. I don't think I've ever felt so sad and laughed so much at the same time. I've only vague memories of my parents' funerals, and the service for Aunt Alice had been a somber occasion indeed. But for nearly an hour, performer after performer had taken to the small stage in the back of the bar and regaled us with their stories of Max Monarch, the man and the legend. Max even had the best seat in the house. His simple brass urn sat on a chair front and center. I was late to get seated and thought I might end up standing in the back when an arm waved me over. Megan had saved me a place on the aisle. I slid into the seat and whispered a thank you. She nodded, and I looked to see that Franny was next to her and Harry had taken a seat on the other side of Franny. He turned and gave me a wry smile, and then we all turned our attention back to the stage. The stories were personal, profound, and profane, and because they were being recounted by performers with decades of stage experience, each story was a small, polished gem. There were stories of USO tours, where Max clashed with Bob Hope, standing ovations at the Magic Circle in London, and late-night card sessions with Orson Welles at the Magic Castle in Los Angeles. The final presentation came from the ventriloquist, Gene Westlake. He took to the stage with his longtime puppet companion, Kenny. Neither one said anything for a few moments, and then Kenny nodded to someone offstage. Recorded music began to play, and Gene and Kenny started singing Shuffle Off to Buffalo, each taking a verse and then, amazingly, harmonizing on the chorus. While they sang, photos of Max appeared on the screen behind them. It was miraculous watching a man's life pass before our eyes, morphing from a fresh-faced teen with a cowlick to a skilled and sophisticated performer. Without even turning toward me, Megan handed me a tissue and then pulled another one out of her purse and passed it to Franny. I dabbed at my eyes, and when I set my hand back down, Megan took it and gave it a squeeze. She turned to me and smiled a sad smile which I returned. I looked past her to see that Franny had gently taken Harry's hand and was rubbing it delicately. The two hands, with their matching age spots, looked good together. After all the performers were through, Harry stood up and walked slowly to the stage. He looked a bit wobbly, and I almost jumped up to help him make the final step up to the platform, but he made it okay on his own. He stood center stage for a long moment, squinting up at the stage lights I had set up that afternoon, and then he finally spoke. The first words Max Monarch said to me were, You know you're doing that wrong. This produced a knowing chuckle from the crowd. Harry waited for the laugh to subside and then continued, I, of course, disagreed with him, and we continued that argument in one form or another for nearly fifty years. I will miss it, and I will miss him. Harry reached into his coat pocket and produced a magic wand. Even from where I was sitting, I could see this wand had some miles on it and would have benefited from a new coat of paint and some spit and polish. As he held the wand in front of him, I suddenly realized what he was going to do. 
This is the broken wand ceremony, I whispered to Megan next to me. She nodded, although I suspect she had no idea what I was talking about. The magic wand, Harry began to recite, holding and turning it for the audience, is one of the oldest known totems. Primitive cave paintings have been found, showing early man holding wand-like objects. In the world of conjuring and conjurers, the wand is considered to be an extension of the magician, part of him and part of his magic. When the magician dies, so does the magic in the wand. It ceases to hold meaning and becomes what it once was, a simple piece of wood. With a sudden move, Harry snapped the wand in half. The action was so unexpected, several people in the audience gasped. Today, we will lay our friend Max to rest, and with him will go the remains of the wand, which is also now finally at rest. It is our sincere hope Max, wherever he may be, is at peace. Harry looked down at the urn in the front row. Goodbye, my friend. Looks like you found the one and only way to win our ongoing argument. Organizing the funeral procession took longer than expected, due in part, I think, to the advanced age and diminished driving skills of many of the attendees. Eventually, though, all the cars were lined up and ready to go, although to the casual observer, most of the cars appeared to be driverless. It was only after looking more closely that you'd spot the gray hairs, oversized glasses, and squinting eyes creeping up from behind the steering wheels. Once everyone was ready, Harry sat next to me in my car with Max's urn on his lap. The motorcycle cop, who was to lead the procession, surveyed the group and started to mount his cycle, suggesting we were finally ready to go. Wait a second, I almost forgot, Harry yelled as he unsnapped his seatbelt. Buster, I can't believe I almost forgot, he repeated as he shoved Max's urn into my lap. I struggled to grasp it as Harry opened the passenger door and quickly climbed out. Once out of the car, he waved to the motorcycle cop and ran toward him. I couldn't hear what he was saying, but Harry handed the cop a sheet of paper and then executed a series of gestures. He pointed at the paper, pointed at the street ahead of us, he pointed at the procession behind us, and then again pointed at the piece of paper. It must have made sense to the cop, for he nodded and then sat for a moment studying the paper while Harry returned to the car. What was that all about? I asked as Harry climbed back in and shut the door. I worked out a special route for the procession, Harry said as he snapped his seatbelt in place. In honor of Max. I handed the urn back to him. What's so special about the route? Funeral processions get to run red lights he said, smiling for the first time in two days. So I worked out a route that would allow us to run the maximum number of red lights between here and the cemetery. I thought Max would get a kick out of it. The motorcycle cop gave us all a wave, and the procession pulled away from the curb and began our short journey to Lakewood Cemetery. In all, we ran 17 red lights. I suspect Max would have loved it.
running red lights in a funeral procession. Uh, I, I believe uh, the joke that sort of inspired me to even think about that was from Dennis Miller. I think the single most frustrating aspect of driving is the red light. You spend your whole life stopping at red lights. Then at the end, there's a very cruel irony. When you die, they let your funeral procession run the red lights on the way to the cemetery. <laughs> you know, because when you're dead, it's important that you make good time, huh? <laughs> well, I'm dead, but I'm early. But I just really liked that idea of the, throughout the book, Max is complaining about all the red lights, which is something my father used to do all the time, about how they would change the timing of the red lights. And he gets to run the red lights in his procession. Um, and I'll also mention that uh, uh, Franny um, was supposed to uh, was supposed to die in the last book. And I'm really glad she didn't because she's proven to be a, uh, a fan favorite. Fan favorite. Yeah, so yeah, we're glad Franny didn't die. Don't don't kill the ones we like, John. Don't I kill the darlings. We don't. We don't. That's one of the the important rules of mystery writing is don't kill the ones they like. Uh, next episode, we're going to take a little detour, but it's a fun detour. We're going to take uh, a turn into the one of the other of the variety arts, magic being a variety art, ventriloquism being a variety art, juggling being a variety art, and the art of impressions with impressionist Jim Meskimen. Uh, he is a phenomenal impressionist. If you have not uh, heard or seen him and, and here's the deal, you probably have heard or seen him. You just don't know it because not only is he doing, you know, kind of stand up impressions like you might see or are used to seeing. He also is hired to impersonate a person's voice when that person is unavailable for some reason. And he has it down. It's great. Yes. Uh, he mentioned in passing that he is. Uh, he does some lines for Colin Firth in the trailer for 1917. Um, and if I'm a smart person, next time I'll put a link up to that. You can't tell which is him and which is Colin Firth as, no. a, as a narrator. It's, it's amazing. I first ran into Jim Meskimen uh, on TikTok and was really impressed with the, the videos. He puts up lots of videos and he does everybody. He does people you'd never think of. And I asked him to record a little ad for the Mark series, and he was happy to do it as Peter Falk in, uh, doing Columbo. Uh, let's just take a moment and listen to that. Okay, jeez. You know what? I almost forgot. One, one more thing. I don't want to take up too much of your time. It just occurred to me, you know, if you like mysteries that are both uh, fun and funny, well, you know, I, I think you're going to really like the Eli Marks mystery series. Mrs. Colombo, she just raves about them. Anyway, sorry, sorry to bother you. <laughs> Is that great or what? Nicely done, John. That was a brilliant idea. Of course, we're both huge Peter Falk fans, so that, makes, that makes it all the better. Yes, that is next episode with the uh, fantastic and fun Jim Meskimen. Thanks again to Jeff McBride and Tobias Beckwith for chatting with us about uh, the Magic Mystery School. Check out the show notes for videos and links. That'll tell you more about what's available for you there. Other than that, we will see you next time with Jim Meskimen. Thanks, everybody. Take care, folks. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.